Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Chabura Public Shiur. Today we are very excited to have with us Daniel A. Klein for an exciting exploration into the mechanisms of the oral law as presented by Shadal and Chacham Josef Faur, who many of us at the Chabura is very familiar with. Um, today, uh, a little bit about our speaker. Uh, Daniel A. Klein is the Yeshiva University and NYU School of Law alum, attorney and legal writer with a deep interest in Italian Jewish culture and Shadal's works. He has translated and published English editions of Shadal's commentaries on various books of the Torah and contributed articles and translations in Jewish law and Shadal to notable journals and online platforms. As usual, uh, may our learning today and always be a merit for our nation, for our soldiers, and for the speedy return of our hostages. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you, everyone, who's going to be listening afterwards. And Danielle, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to begin by saying, benvenuti, bienvenidos, and welcome. Today, we'll be discussing some interesting and very basic thoughts about the nature of our oral Torah, Torah Shabal Peh, as formulated by two particular Torah scholars, Shmuel David Lutzato, known as Shadal, and Chacham Jose Faur. Uh, to my knowledge, these two individuals have never really been discussed together or compared in any sustained way. Uh, we have you, Sina Gain, to thank, and Chabura as well for coming up with this very intriguing and challenging topic of discussion. And I thank them personally for inviting me to be the one to present this material. I just hope I'll be able to do it justice. Um, as you pointed out, I would like to pause for a minute to give thought to those of us, those, those we have lost, those who are missing to us and those who are defending us. And I would like to dedicate today's session to their honor. Um, you've heard a little bit about me in the introduction just now. I need to give you a little bit more disclosure. Uh, I am no Sfaradi. I'm an American of Ashkenazi origin, Hungarian, German, and Lithuanian. Um, there was an elderly cousin of mine who used to claim that he had heard that the Kleins came out of Spain in 1492. Uh, he spent many years trying to document that. He came up with pages and pages of family trees, but never traced us back to Spain. Um, even if the, uh, the Klein past is not Sephardi, I will say that at least part of the Klein future is because, um, I have four children. My oldest, my son married a woman whose father is of Egyptian Sephardi heritage. And so their children, my grandchildren are part Sephardi and I'm very pleased and proud of that. Um, I also need to let you know, I am not an academic and I'm not a rabbi. Um, I've been called very kindly by uh, one of the Chabara people, J.J. Kimchi, a gentleman scholar. I kind of like that. Uh, the only difference between me and any average graduate of Yeshiva University is that I happen to have taught myself Italian. Um, that led to a long, interesting chain, chain of events, which I will spare you. It led me to Shadal, and it led me to a lifelong labor of love translating some of his works. I'm speaking to you today or this evening or tonight, wherever you are, from Rochester, New York, about 60 miles down the road from Niagara Falls, if that gives you some bearing. Um, I wish I could be with you in person in London. I, I was there once in 1972. I'd love to come back. Um, the last time I was in a Zoom session which, with a London connection was uh, 
about a year ago when a cousin of mine, Julius Lunzer, in London was celebrating his 100th birthday. Uh, he now Bliain Hara is 101, so I, I do have a London connection. Um, I'd also like to mention some of my personal Chabura connections. Uh, besides yourself, Sina, um, besides J.J. Kinfi, who I've already mentioned, who I've been in touch with repeatedly over the last couple of years, um, I also have a connection with the Beavis Marx Synagogue, Rabbi Shalom Maris, who grew up about a block away from my house in Rochester, New York. So nice little connection there, small world. I also want to mention that the Chaburah's publishing house, Da'at Press, will soon be publishing a volume called Letters on Kabbalah, Correspondences Between Two Schools of Jewish Thought, edited by J.J. Kinchi. This book will include a translation that I did from the original Italian of letters between Shadal and Rav Elia Benamozeg, um, debating the value of Kabbalah, among other issues, and it makes for very exciting and interesting reading, I think. Now a few words about Shadal. Uh, I won't go into any great detail because uh, for more in-depth treatment, all you need to do is to tune into J.J. Kimke's two-part program on Shadal, which he presented last year. Um, that's what got me actually interested in, in the, uh, the Chabura. I contacted him to tell him how much I enjoyed it, and one thing led to another. Shadal lived from 1800 to 1865. When I speak to American audiences, I mention that this is basically the same time frame as Abraham Lincoln. Um, to a British audience, I will add that he was born during the reign of King George III. He died during the reign of Queen Victoria, and the prime minister at the year of his death was Lord Palmerston. So that gives you some bearing if you are British. Um, I also need to mention that Shadal was not a Swaradi either. Some of you may have thought that he was, but he was not. Uh, I once came across a website that listed him among forgotten Sfaradi scholars. And although it's wonderful that they were trying to bring more attention to his name, it was not really accurate. He, he um, by his own account, came from a family that moved to Italy in the 1500s from Germany, from the eastern German pro province of Lausitz, otherwise known as Lusatia, and somehow that became Luzzato in Italian. Um, the name Luzzato brings to mind, probably to most of you, Moshe Chaim Luzzato, the author of Misilat Yisharim. He was a great granduncle of Shadal. He lived in the 1700s. The other famous relative of Shadal, believe it or not, was the mayor of New York, Fiorello LaGuardia. Um, LaGuardia's grandmother was named Fiorina Luzzato. She lived in Trieste and... Um, uh, LaGuardia actually was halachically Jewish, although not a practicing Jew. Uh, cute little story about him. He was running for office once, and his opponent accused him of being an anti-Semite. And he said, let's have a debate about that, but the, the debate has to be in Yiddish, which he actually did know, and the opponent backed off and apparently lost the election. Um, as I said, or as I, I mentioned, the city of Trieste, that, that's where Shadal was born. At the time, there was no such country as Italy. Trieste was an Italian-speaking uh, cosmopolitan kind of seaport, uh, but it was part of the Austrian Empire. And actually, Shadal spent his entire life as a subject of that empire. Um, he was Italian by culture and by language. Italian was his native language. Um, even though he was not 
genuinely a Sephardi. Italian Jewry is part of the Mediterranean Jewish culture, which you might consider a Sephardi adjacent. Um, there, the original element of Italian Jews came during the Roman Empire. They are not considered Ashkenazi or Sephardi. They're just Italian Jews. Um, actual Sephardim came in later from Spain and other places. Uh, as I just mentioned, Ashkenazim also came in. So the blend of this um, group of people became what we know of Ita as Italian Jewry nowadays. Um, and there are certain similarities to Sephardi culture, but they are, they are distinct. He spent his entire professional career teaching at a school called the Collegio Rabbinico Italiano. This was a very interesting school, founded in 1829 as a training school for communal rabbis. It was basically the first school of its kind in the whole world, and it still exists to this day in Rome. I'll be talking a little bit about more, about, more about it a little bit later. Shadal was not university trained. When he was about 13 years old, he um, ended his formal schooling because he became ill. His, his doctor said, don't go to school anymore. He continued his education with his father, with some of the local rabbis, and voracious reading on his own. He taught himself um, various different languages, ancient and modern. Uh, he was a Talmud scholar. He's said to have known Tanakh by heart. Um, he had all kinds of incredible knowledge that he basically taught himself. Um, he was part of the movement known as Wissenschaft des Judentums, the academic um, approach to Jewish uh, learning. Um, but he was a little bit different from most of the practitioners of Wissenschaft because he accused them of being in it only for personal glory, for studying ancient Judaism as anyone would study ancient Egypt or ancient Persia. Uh, he felt they weren't properly motivated to study it as a living way of life and civilization as he was. He was a little bit out of the box there. He was also not yeshiva trained, which um, may account for some of his original ideas. Uh, he did not consider himself a rabbi. Um, he did not have the usual kind of smicha. Uh, later on in life, one of the leading rabbis of Italy, probably at the behest of his school, um, conferred upon him the title of Chacham, but he apparently never used that in his own personal life. What he was, was a poet, a Hebrew poet. He was a teacher. He was a linguist. He was a religious thinker. But perhaps most importantly of all, he was a mefaresh. He spent a great deal of his time interpreting, writing comments on various books of Tanakh. Um, at this point, we're ready to a little start a little bit of compare and contrast with Chacham Fa'ur. Um, most of the people I've mentioned this talk to in advance have not heard of him. Uh, I imagine that my British audience has heard of him. I know they have heard of him because uh, um, a recent lecture with uh, Rob Shmuley Phillips, which I listened to, did mention him several times. So I think you're basically familiar with him. I will give you some back, uh, basic background information. Um, unlike Shadal, Faur was a yeshiva student. He had uh, attended the yeshiva in Lakewood. He was a university graduate. He uh, attended the University of Barcelona. And yet both of them were fiercely original thinkers. 
they were outsiders who, again, to use the expression, very often thought outside the box. Um, I read a description of some of the um, uh, Tanakh classes that Chacham Fa'ur used to give. And the, the statement was, who else would use ancient Semitic grammar in a class to teach Mikra, the biblical text, sprinkled with casual references to the works of philosopher and son of Conversos, Francisco Sanchez, Sigmund Freud, and the scholar of religion, Mercia Eliade. Who else would do such a thing? Well, Shadal would. Um, Shadal, in his teaching and in his commentaries, referred to the ancient uh, Aramaic, Syriac, and Arabic in in, uh, in effort to understand the Hebrew better. He referred to uh, Greek and Roman authorities such as Josephus, Homer, Herodotus, Seneca, Ovid. He referred to Christian authorities such as St. Jerome and various Christian Hebraists of uh, later days, many of them Dutch or French. He referred to contemporary scholars such as Cesare Beccaria, who was one of the leading early criminologists. He had a very wide uh, universe and he, he brought it all into his commentaries. Um, both Chacham Fa'ur and Shadal, as I mentioned, uh, taught in institutions that were not traditional yeshivot. Um, both of them, as a consequence, have had their orthodoxy questioned. And here I'll tell you a little bit more about Chacham Fa'ur. Where he taught was the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. This was a school that had started out as a general traditional seminary, but became gradually uh, identified with the conservative movement, what in Britain might be called Masarti. Um, in the uh, earlier times and up to, um, let's say, the 70s or 80s, he, Chacham Fa'ur was one of several Orthodox scholars who taught at this seminary. Um, I personally knew another one of his Orthodox colleagues, uh, Dr. Chaim Dimitrovsky. I never had him as a teacher, but he was a family friend. He was a neighbor and he was a fellow congregant in my Orthodox school that I grew up with. Um, both Dr. Dimitrovsky and Chacham Fa'ur opposed the seminary's decision to ordain women rabbis in the 1980s. Uh, in fact, Chacham Fa'ur left the seminary as a result and even tried to claim breach of contract because he said, this is not what I signed up for. This is a, a total change of scene here. Um, nevertheless, in 1988, uh, a letter circulated entitled The Torah View on Dr. Fa'ur. Already a warning sign there. They didn't call him rabbi or chacham. They called him doctor. Um, this letter included quotes attributed to 17 notable rabbis, some of them like Rav Shaul Kassin of the Syrian community in Brooklyn and Rav Elazar Menachem Anshach of, of Israel uh, said they were banning him from the teaching of Torah in the Syrian community in Brooklyn. Um, we'll see why in a minute. Uh, other parts of the letter quoted um, to Shavuot of such people as Rav Avadia Yosef and Rav Moshe Feinstein arguing that rabbis who had taught in a conservative seminary should not be accepted as a Torah teacher. Um, there was a charge in this letter that uh, Chacham Fa'ur's books emitted an odor of heresy. They didn't quite spell out what that meant or why, but that's what the charge was. There was an assertion that he was a threat to the purity of faith and religion in the congregation. Um, 
As a result, Chacham Fatwar left Brooklyn. Eventually, he served, he made Aliyah, he served as a professor of Talmud at Bar Ilan, and then as a professor of law at the Netanya Law School. So that gives you some idea of the tribulations that he went through. During his lifetime, Shadal was uh, not directly attacked in any sort of way like that. Um, one of his correspondents did accuse him of quoting in his commentaries, uncircumcised heretics. Uh, the answer he gave to that was um, several reasons for that. Um, sometimes they're actually right. Sometimes if they're wrong, I want to refute them. And if they're right, I want to give credit where it's due and accept the truth from wherever it comes. Um, interestingly, he was never criticized that I know of for teaching at a, a, a school like the Collegio Rabbinico, um, which, as I mentioned, was not a traditionally yeshiva. Uh, and yet it's never been described seriously as an, un, an unorthodox institution. Uh, the institution that you might compare it to was the Hildesheimer Rabbiner Seminar in Berlin, which was a training school for Orthodox rabbis in Germany. Um, they too uh, were involved in Wissenschaft type learning. Uh, it was an Orthodox institution. It, by everyone's admission, did not produce first-rank Talmudic scholars, um, which was something that the Collegio Rabinico also never quite uh, accomplished in the early days. Um, as I said, the, the Collegio still is running in Rome, it's going strong, and um, it's got a more solid program than the school used to have. Uh, it's, it's a longer period of education, Students are encouraged to go learn in other yeshivot in Israel or elsewhere, and um, uh, it's probably a little more solid curriculum than there used to be. In our day, though, Shadal has been accused of espousing unorthodox views. And how did this come up? Um, in, a, in an online review, when my Shadal volume on Exodus came out, um, a Torah scholar said, and I quote, the sophisticated reader will find many worthy interpretations in Shadal's commentary. However, only someone ready to do theological battle with Shadal should tread carefully through this commentary. Unlike Mendelssohn's Beor, which contains no unorthodox theology, Shadal's commentary occasionally deviates from orthodox beliefs. And he went on to specify that what he was talking about was Shadal's take on Torah Sheb Al-Peh. So now we're going to get into the, the meat of what we're talking about today. Um, in general, Chacham uh, Fa'ur laid the theoretical groundwork for this discussion, and Shadal got into more specifics, but we'll see how that works out. Um, in a piece called Writing the History of Halakha, Positivists and Contextualists, Fa'ur wrote, the positivist approach is the traditional way of learning studied in most contemporary yeshivot. And he went on to explain, traditional historians of halakha and positivist historians of science they have something in common. They share a common disregard of exterior explanations, considerations that do not derive from the halakhic or scientific body itself. Uh, he went, to say, went on to say, when attempting to portray a certain shift within halakha, Classic style rabbinic scholars will typically emphasize the theoretical legal basis for the change, 
while ignoring human motivations leading to it. Um, he mentioned that one of the leading positivists uh, of that school was uh, Yosef Ber Soloveitchik, known popularly as the Rav, uh, according to whom halacha is a closed system in the sense that it is neither determined nor activated by outside elements. It has its own methodology and mode of analysis. And I just happened across a uh, very recent article in the publication Chakira by David Kerwin, who's also from Rochester. Um, he mentions uh, the view of the Rav that halacha should be interpreted via objective halachic categories instead of historical, psychological, or sociological considerations. On the other hand, explained Chacham Fa'ur, the contextual approach is the product of scholarship practiced in universities and other academically oriented institutes. Um, academic scholars, he says, feel that a description of halacha that does not consider the context of halacha making in reality is incomplete and fragmentary. This school of thought posits that the development of halacha should be treated similarly to other human endeavors which benefit from contextualization. Um, he continues to explain, academic scholars use sociological, economic, philosophical, and historical perspectives and methodologies to describe the development of halakha. Modern scholars of halakha are con constantly placing their findings in wider historical frameworks, and they look at halakhic literature as a product of human culture that is the result of a certain time and place. And just to add to that picture, back to the article by David Kerwin, um, taking the opposite approach of Rav Soloveitchik was Rabbi Eliezer Berkovitz, who maintained that the halacha developed and operated in the historical context of the nation. So there are two quite different approaches to the history of halacha. Um, and here I'd like to bring in uh, how it relates to um, the, the history of law in general, not just halacha. Um, I, I'm a kind of a fan of a very famous American legal scholar, the uh, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. In 1881, he wrote a book about the common law with a very famous quote, which I will give to you. The life of the law has not been logic. It has been experience. The felt necessities of the time, the prevalent moral and political theories, institutions of public policy, avowed or unconscious, even the prejudices which judges, which judges shared with their fellow men have had a good deal more to do than the syllogism in determining the rules by which men should be governed. So this gives you some idea. This is an, a, a debate that takes place outside the framework of the halacha also. Um, the question is, did Chacham Fa'ur take sides between the one approach or the other? Uh, I think he pretty clearly tipped his hand because um, Another part of this uh, essay reads as follows. Anyone versed in the extensive halachic response to literature knows well that a variety of factors among which can be counted political, economic, sociological, and psychological are part of the mixture that directly contributes to the formation of the halachic ruling. The rabbinic decisors and halachic responders are not isolated or secluded inside the world of the study hall and their verdicts have more than a touch of external influences. So it was a pretty clear idea of where he stood on this issue. Um, he went on to say, 
The law grants the judiciary authority to legislate new rules and develop legal doctrines, which are called derabanan. And I will just mention here, um, we Americans are trained to think that there is a very serious um, separation of powers between the judiciary and the legislature. Um, one of the worst things you can say about a court in the United States is that they're legislating from the bench. Um, in, in the halakhic system, though, there isn't any really clear demarcation. The judiciary may legislate, or maybe they used to be able to legislate. Chacham uh, Fawur said, uh, the Gaonim and Maimonides maintained that this authority was granted to the judiciary by the Torah, and he uh, cites Deuteronomy 17.11, which reads as follows in Shadal's translation. According to the teaching, the Torah, that they will give you, they being the legal authorities of your time, and according to the decision that they will pronounce, you will do. You must not stray to the right or the left from the decision that they communicate to you. And to um, bring in a, a, a parallel to American law again, which I like to do, uh, this could be regarded, this, this Pasuk from Devarim could be regarded as the Torah's elastic clause. Um, there is a clause in the United States Constitution called the elastic or the necessary and proper clause, which says the Congress shall have power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Um, so you, you can see that, at least according to Shadal, there was a, a very broad grant of authority given to Chazal. Um, so, according to Faur, again, the purpose of this type of legislation is to meet new political, economic, and social circumstances facing Israel, particularly after the exile and the destruction of the temple. Now, here I'd like to get into an interesting question that's come up in halachic discussions. Is the law like mathematics? Um, some have answered yes. Uh, shouldn't be any surprise from what I've said that one of them was the Rav, who, according to Faur, uh, maintained the halacha as its own methodology, mode of analysis, conceptualized rationale, even as do mathematics and physics. Um, this is supplemented again, looking at David Kerwin's article about the Rav. He explains his position as the follows. Just as these factors, historical, psychological, or sociological considerations, are irrelevant when solving mathematical problems, so too they will cause great damage if they are considered when determining the halacha. Um, however, there is the opposite position. I will uh, quote Justice Holmes once more. He said, the law embodies the story of a nation's development through many centuries, and it cannot be dealt with as if it contained only the axioms and corollaries of a book of mathematics. Directly opposite position. Uh, now we're going to read you another uh, quotation. I won't uh, give you the, the name of the person until after because I want you to think who it possibly could have been. Uh, every student of the Talmud knows that there are no ultimate proofs showing that a certain explanation to the Talmud is more correct than another one. This science is not similar to geometry or astronomy. Now, this sounds like a far, fairly revolutionary modern statement. Um, you have to wonder, well, who, who could have said such a thing? It was Ramban uh, writing in the year 1210, supposedly at the age of 16. So this is a very old 
opinion that, uh, yes, uh, human factors do come into the study of halacha. Um, so it's an old debate. Where did Shadal come down in this debate? He was very much what Chacham Fa'ur would have called a contextualist. Um, this was in keeping with his approach as a Pshat commentator. He, what, in his commenta commentary, he wanted to uh, expound the simple, basic, plain meaning of the words. Um, sometimes this Pshat, and here is an elephant in the room, uh, conflicts with the Darash. It conflicts with the way the rabbis understand the Pasuk in a halachic way. Um, and here's another part of that elephant. The Darash can sometimes seem fanciful or far-fetched or forced. How do we deal with that sort of thing? Um, I'll get to that in a minute, but here's a case in point, which is brought uh, into, into play by Shadal. Um, Exodus 21.8 talking about the, the rules of the uh, uh, female servant or slave. If a master does not wish to marry his maidservant, her father is admonished not to resell her la'am nochri. Um, this is a phrase that's understood by Shadal in the, in the Pshat sense as meaning she can't be resold to a foreign people or possibly a man of another um, tribe of Israel because tribes are sometimes known as am. Um, but Chazal interpreted La'am Nochri in keeping with uh, Onkelis' interpretation, Ligvar Ocharan, she may not be sold to any other man, Israelite or non-Israelite. And seems to be a bit of a stretch to get from La'am Nochri, a, a foreign nation, to anyone else, even if he belongs to the nation of Israel. How, does, how do you get from one to the other? Um, some Mefarshim take the approach that they want to equate the Pshat with the Darash. Um, Rashi's sole comment on this Pasuk is, He may not sell her to anyone else. He doesn't explain what, how, the, how he derives that um, understanding from Am uh, Nochri. It doesn't feel it needs to be explained. Uh, Malbim, a much later commentary, who uh, felt that it was important to unify the Pshat and the Drash and show that they were compatible, had this to say. He said, selling her to anyone else would be like selling her to a foreign nation because she has come to feel at home in her master's house. And that's a very clever, uh, very beautiful um, interpretation of the phrase La'am Nochri, but still, it's not shot. It feels like it may be a bit of a stretch. How does Shadal deal with it? He very forthrightly says, times changed. Originally, if the maidservant was resold to a member of another tribe, she, he would keep her in servitude. But if she were resold to one of her own tribesmen, he would redeem her. He would pay the money to, to free her. But over time, the sense of kinship among members of the same tribe was weakened. Even if she were sold to a, a man of her own tribe, he wouldn't feel the same sense of kinship that there would have been in the older days. He would not have redeemed her. He would have kept her in bondage. So Chazal, in their time, were constrained to ban her sale to anyone else, whether it was the same tribe, another tribe, a foreign tribe, a foreign country, or... Uh, 
a fellow tribes person. So according to Shadal, there was a, a shift in sociology, a shift in history, and the, the rabbis responded accordingly. Um, Shadal explained, in every instance in which the rabbis turned away from the plain meaning of the scriptures, where the statement is not an individual's opinion, but is agreed to without dissent, it is not a mistake that they made, but rather a takana that they instituted according to the needs of the generations. Then he says, and who is a reformator like they were? Reformator being a, a Latin word, a German word. It's a reformer. In Hebrew, his original Hebrew was umi kmohem reformator. But their takanot were made with deep wisdom, fear of God, and love of humankind, not for their own benefit or honor, and not in order to find favor in the eyes of flesh and blood. And we'll get into what he meant by that a little bit more later. Um, according to Shadal, even when there were no necessarily no changes in in social conditions, Chazal had the authority to read their own meaning into the text when they felt it was proper. And here's an example of that. Exodus 22, 2. Um, if a thief comes at night, uh, you, uh, you're allowed to kill him because you don't know what's going on and uh, you're allowed to defend your property. If, however, the sun has risen over him, over the thief, and the Hebrew is im zaracha hashemesh alav, um, then you are no longer allowed to kill him because you can see who he is and what he's doing and what you need to do is capture him, bring him to court, and administer justice. Um, however, the Chachamim interpreted the phrase im zaracha hashemesh alav to mean that if it is clear to you as the sun that the thief does not come with murderous intention, then do not kill him. In other words, even if it's at night when it's dark, but you know exactly who it is and what he's doing, uh, as if the sun were there, you are not allowed to kill him. Um, this is brought into Rashi's comment. It's, it's mentioned in Sanhedrin. Um, what Shadal says is, this is a correct rule of law, only it is not the plain meaning of the verse, but merely an asmachta. And here's a, a very interesting word that um, does appear in the Talmud. Uh, Ibn Ezra developed it into a, a meaning where uh, he said, this is something where the Pshat and the Darash seem to disagree. According to Ibn Ezra, um, then where do they get this rule if, it, if it's not the Pshat? Uh, Ibn Ezra said the Chazal who made this rule didn't make this rule. They heard it from uh, teachers before them. Shadal went further. He said, yes, in some cases, this sort of asmachta is based on a teaching from earlier days, from earlier teachers, but not always. Sometimes what the rabbis had to do was come up with a new rule that they legislated to keep up with this changing sociology, history, economics of their era. Um, now, at this point, I want to drop myself. I have a question for Chacham Sina. Um, I was listening to Shmuley Phillips' uh, shiur recently. I believe I heard you during that shiur ascribe the Asmachta theory to Chacham Fa'ur and also to someone else. And I didn't catch the, the name of who else you might have been referring to. Can I ask you what, what you were talking? So, unfortunately, I'm not Chacham Sina. <laughs> I'm, uh, oh. Oh. <laughs> I'm just... Uh... Low level oh, here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, is, is he in attendance at all? Do you know? 
and Steve Young. I do, I do not think he is on right now. Okay, well, all right, we'll have to uh, shelve that question for now. Um, I do believe I heard him uh, connect Chacham Fa'ur with the uh, Asmachta theory. Uh, we'll see, maybe if we know anything more about that. Um, uh, Shadal uh, went on to explain, not in this particular commentary, but uh, in other writings, uh, at first Chazal were able to legislate without resorting to Asmachta. They, if they wanted to legislate a new rule, they just did it because um, they didn't feel they were in any kind of danger of being um, disobeyed. Their, their authority was clear, at least at one point in history. But there did come a time when they lost their political power, at which time they felt the need to base their rulings on textual cues, asmachtot, as a sort of an aid memoir. Um, but those um, textual cues were not really the source of the halacha. The source either was older teachings or a newly legislated rule to uh, meet with the times. Uh, then Shadal said something that sounds quite shocking. He said, it is not our duty to distort the scriptural text in order to make them agree with the halacha, which sounds like a totally heretical statement, uh, except that he adds, but it is our duty to act according to halacha, as it says, according to the teaching that they will give you. So he was perfectly on board with what, what he felt Chazal were doing. Um, yes, they were making up their own rules. Yes, they had the perfectly solid authority to do that. Uh, these were wise rulings that they made. They were necessary for their times, and there's nothing wrong with that, and they remain binding down the generations. Um, however, uh, his approach was uh, bothered uh, certain people. Um, I mentioned the review that was made to my Shadal at Exodus. Um, part of that review said, the suggestion that the sages intentionally changed the Torah, albeit with good intentions, means that we would be obeying the rabbis and disobeying God. Uh, he went on to say, Shadal, by engaging in historicism, was effectively accusing the sages of distorting the Torah to fit their agendas and that uh, and turning those laws into historical contingencies deprives them of all sanctity. This is spoken like a good positivist, uh, maintaining that approach. I will tell you that um, uh, shortly after this came out, I was able to appear at Shiva University and speak to a group of people there about uh, my book. Uh, the audience, which was full of academics and students who were Orthodox, uh, basically said, what was his problem? What, what was his objection to this? Um, so this room must have been full of contextualists. Um, let's go back to Rav Chacham uh, Fa'ur here. Um, his take on this problem was as follows. He said, the rabbinic doctrine of Derasha is consistent with the principle of Loba Shamayimhi. Um, what was ratified in the covenant of Sinai was not the intention of the lawgiver. It's not so much what God wanted us to do, but the actual law as understood by those who received it. It follows that the task of the judiciary is not to recapture the original intent of the legislator, with a capital L, that's God, but to apply the text of the law to the situation at hand 
by making innovative connections, generating thereby fresh meaning and understanding of the law. So Chacham Fa'ur would not have had any problem with uh, this supposed uh, objection of we are disobeying God and, and obeying the rabbis. Um, he also said the uh, about the speaking of the interaction of the Torah and the people uh, and the people, it results in a special non-hierarchic realm. The book establishes a horizontal relationship between God and Israel and between the individual and the nation. In other words, it's not God standing over us telling us what to do. Uh, it is God having, in a sense, surrendered the Torah to us or sharing the Torah to us in a horizontal relationship and granting human beings great powers to uh, rule as to what the Torah actually means for us. Um, so again, I, I come to the question of whether Chacham Fa'ur actually um, uh, employed the Asmachta approach, or uh, maybe at least in addition to that, maybe approach, uh, uh, applied something else. And I, I say that because I have another um, citation from him. He said, many mosaic laws and regulations were only encoded as a clue, a remez, in the kitab, the text system of the Torah, to be decoded by the mihtab, the exposition system of Israel, at a later time, when acceptance of these laws would be a matter of conviction rather than imposition. In other words, um, the Torah contains uh, hidden cues or clues that are, were picked up in later generations, not in earlier generations, but they were picked up in later generations when they matured, when they became something that the rabbis felt was useful to the people and would be accepted. Um, so Chacham uh, uh, says, even minute orthographic irregularities, in other words, little uh, oddities of spelling, may supply the proper clue uh, via drasha in the promotion of a higher standard of behavior. Now, this is interesting because this was also the uh, approach of Rashbam. Um, Rashbam believed very much in explaining the pshat in his commentary, but he also uh, felt that the um, rabbinic drasha was binding, uh, even against the pshat. Um, and where did he feel the rabbis get got their uh, rulings from? He said that they were yiturim. There's these little, um, what look like superficial uh, differences in the text that can be de depended upon to be read, read into. So um, I have to point out that both Shadal and Chacham Fa'ur would have agreed that Chazal were not legislating with carte blanche. They were just not, they were not just doing whatever they felt like. Uh, according to Chacham Fa'ur, the judiciary, by which he meant the Sanhedrin, does not approach the text of the law from an intellectual vacuum, but according to a well-established legal doctrine and principles. The authority of the judiciary presupposes constancy with the doctrines defined by the Sinaitic nucleus, in other words, the Doraita. Were the court to violate that trust, its pronouncements would be null and void. Um, let me try to finish up what I want to say here. Shadal, uh, in turn, uh, was of the opinion that Chazal were operating according to the principles of the Torah and what he called its secret teachings that had been handed down from Sinai. So there was a God-centered core of Torah Shebaal Peh, which was human developed. Um, 
the conservative approach, the approach of the conservative movement would have taken this pasuk we refer to, Deuteronomy 7.11, to empower and perhaps even obligate uh, post-rabbinic authorities of every generation to effect further changes in halacha. Um, is there any dividing line between that position and what Shadal and Chacham were, were advocating? I think there is. Um, what Shadal said was, all the men, and he was speaking of the reform movement of his day, like the 1840s or so, all the men who are seeking to institute reforms, takanot, and innovations in Israel are all like babes and sucklings in relation to our ancient rabbis of blessed memory, who in their Jewish wisdom received from Sinai, succeeded, uh, wisdom succeed, received from Sinai, succeeded in fortifying Israel like a column of iron and a wall of bronze against all the evil times that befell us. Um, uh, one of the leading scholars of our time of Shadal, uh, Ephraim Chamiel, explains that for Lutzato, reform was only a theoretical possibility. Um, the ones make it capable of making such decisions had to be um, a body of God-fearing uh, people, expert in halacha, lovers of mankind, modest, without personal partiality, unwilling uh, to understand the spirit of the nation and its needs with deep wisdom and with broad comprehensive outlook, like the Chazal, who were the true reformers. Such a body did not exist in Shadal's time, and in fact, he would have thought could not exist. Hence, practically speaking, it was impossible to make changes in the halacha in his time. Uh, similarly, we look at Chacham Fa'ur, as explained by an article I saw by Rabbi Alan Uter, for from Rav Faur, I learned that according to Orthodox Judaism, the right to issue apodictic, which means clearly established beyond dispute decrees, after uh, Rav Ashi has lapsed. In other words, the end of the Gemar period closed the legislative period. Um, as uh, Sina Kahan said in the uh, previous lecture, um, that was the end of the, the so-called uh, Senate or Parliament. Um, there is no legal organ called the Poskin says Rabbi Yudur, interpreting Fawar. To legislate for all Israel, one must be authorized to legislate by all Israel. Uh, since there is no post-Talmudic court accepted by all Israel, no individual court has the authority to legislate for all Israel. Um, not quite the same expression of view as Shadal did, but I think they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, notice that Shadal's concern was the reform movement of his day. He didn't want halakha changes to be made um, that went off to the left. Uh, apparently what Chacham Fa'ur was more concerned about was um, the presumptions of certain halakhic authorities of his day of, of Orthodox rabbis or bodies going off to the right. Um, but apparently what they would have agreed on Chazal, uh, about Chazal was that they were the last of the legislators, um, but later authorities still have the power to interpret and apply halacha to new situations, taking into account history, sociology, economics, and what Justice Holmes would have called the felt necessities of the time. And that, in a nutshell, is what Shadal and Chacham Pa'ur uh, shared. Um, there would probably be much more to say about this, much more than I could even be capable of explaining, but uh, that's what I have, and I would like to
think he is stuck. To open the floor for questions, if there are any. Um, hello, um, my name yes. is Sam Blacks. Um, I was just curious, while studying both of these figures, uh, did you ever think about what connection there might be to a relative of yours, Nathan Isaacs, in, in their thought? <laughs> um, it's interesting that you mentioned Nathan Isaacs. Uh, yes, Nathan Isaacs was a great uncle of mine. I, he died before I was born. I unfortunately never knew him. Um, he was a quite unique figure. He was a professor of law, professor of business law at Harvard in the 1920s and 30s at a time when um, Jewish professors there were practically unheard of and Orthodox professors were completely unheard of. He was, he was unique. Um, he uh, wrote some very interesting things about the development of halacha, um, also the development of um, world systems of law. Um, it would be fascinating for somebody to sit down and compare his approaches to those of somebody like Shadal or somebody like Chacham Ba'ur. I'm sure it could be done. Uh, maybe when I have time someday, maybe I'll try. But uh, yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because there are entities to it. Anyone else? Thank you very much. I wrote my question in the text, but I'll, I'll speak it out. Um, I don't know if you've frozen, but if I'll ask it anyway. Um, but uh, according to Chacham Faul, why did the rabbinic um, like leg legislative authority end with Ravashi or the ceiling of the Talmud? Like what exactly changed at that point? That's a very good question. I don't think I've seen him answer that question in particular. Um if you blend what he said with what uh, Shadal said, perhaps there was a feeling that uh, it was at the end of this period that uh, th there was no more supply of people who had the, the proper qualifications, who had the broad outlook, who had the uh, extensive learning, who had the um, um, consciousness of what the people wanted, the, the impartiality, whatever it is. Um, it may be a harsh... Uh, view of, of say the Gaonim or some of the authorities that came later, but um, it may not have been uh, terribly harsh. It may be more realistic in terms of uh, say the 19th century if, uh, figures who were trying to change halacha. Um, it's a good question that actually occurred to me, and I don't really have a, a solid answer for it. According to Shadal, it, it seems more arbitrary then. Um... You know, you could one could argue that uh, uh, at the time of the Geonim, they might have been, you know, enough leaders in the rabbinic world to have reversed that. So even if there was a generation of or, or two where they they didn't have the um, all, all the criteria that Shadal mentioned that you just referred to, um, like it could come back in in a gener it could come back now. Then right. So what is the line? That's I, what I didn't really understand according to Shadal. I'm, I'm assuming that according to Chacham Faur, there's, there's other reasons um, to do with like national consensus or or some form of um, universal, uh, where, which, which at the time of the Gemara, maybe they did have, you know, it was the, the power or the authority was centralized. That's my understanding, but I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. 
Um, I am uh, in basic agreement with what you're saying. Uh, I, I, Shadal, as far as I know, did not give a specific cutoff date of when things went south. Um, uh, Chacham Fa'ur did, and he had his uh, his reasons, but um, it, it's hard to say. I, I, I don't know if Shadal would have thought uh, maybe there were some people at some point in history that, that could have picked up this mantle again. Uh, all I know is that he felt that in his day it was definitely not happening. And I suspect that if he were alive today, he would continue that opinion. Thank you. Being that Shadal and uh, Chacham Fur open up the door to not everything is, you know, if you if there's a derasha, then it's a then it's the deraita. Then do they know? Do they have ways of knowing when something is derabanan, or or when or when something is a deraita? Uh, very interesting question. Um, there, I I mentioned Ephraim Chamiel. He he made a sort of a table of um, different enact enactments of the rabbis, and he classified some of them, many of them, according to Shadal, as the Rabbanan. Uh, I'm not sure that's correct, because even some of the uh, laws that are derived from the, say, the Shlosha Semidot or, or Drasha, um, some of them do get accepted as Doraita. Uh, it's what I call a term of art in the legal profession. Um, it's very hard to say, well, this is from the Torah, this is from the rabbi. Sometimes they fall in between. Um, and I would say, I would guess, although I haven't seen a specific discussion in saying that it, it's not necessarily the case that everything the rabbis came up with was the Rabbanan. Uh, some of what they came up with, I believe he would have said, would have had the force of Doraita. Thank you. Okay. Anyone else? Last questions? Okay. So we'll close it for tonight. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. And thank you so much for that amazing presentation. Hopefully we'll have you many more times with us. And uh, Lailatov, everyone. Thank you so much. Lailatov.